Welcome to this message from Eastwood Baptist Church, one church with two locations in Bowling Green and Alberton, Kentucky. To learn more, visit eastwoodbc.org. Now, may the Lord bless you in the hearing of His Holy Word. First time I've got to preach with Will leading worship. Aren't y'all blessed to have him out here? And I know, I know with Pastor Ben, you get solid biblical preaching, great preaching every Sunday. And so if I wasn't the pastor over at the East Campus, I'd probably join the South Campus. And uh, uh, glad to be here. Back in June, I got on a Southwest Airlines flight to Dallas, and I was sitting there, and you know what happens. The, the stewardess comes on, and she says, can I have your attention, please? And, and they're in the aisle, and they begin to tell us about the importance of having your seatbelt fastened at all times, and they point out where the, the exit rows are and tell you that flash lighting will appear in case of an emergency, and your seat's a flotation device. And, and as they were going through all of this stuff, I looked around, and nobody was paying attention. Nobody was listening to the things that the stewardess was saying. And, and I'll be honest, that was one of the first times that I actually listened to it in a long time, but it just caught my attention that nobody was paying attention. And so I thought, what if, what if she took a doll and soaked it in jet fuel, lit it on fire, and ran down the aisle saying, this could be you if you don't pay attention. Two things would happen. She'd probably lose her job, but I guarantee you she'd have the attention of everybody on the flight. And so today's topic is one of those topics where you've probably heard it before. And, and see, she, she would, if, if there was an emergency and we had been paying attention, she would have been doing us a great favor in telling us all of the things that she told us. And so this morning, with this morning's topic, you might be tempted to say, well, you know, I've heard that. I've heard it before. But if it's something that applies to you, I would encourage you to listen because I'll be doing you a great favor this morning in teaching you what the Word of God says. The reality is, you know, we, we talk about this being the land of the living. We're really in the land of the dying, headed to the land of the living. You understand that, right? Because we're all one day closer to death than we were yesterday. Now, that sounds kind of morbid, but it's true. Every one of us are one step closer to eternity. And we're going to the land of the living where we will be alive for all of eternity. The question is, where will we spend that eternity? Now, most of us have no problem believing in heaven. Most Americans affirm the idea of heaven. But the concept of hell seems a little bit medieval to people. Folks, folks don't want to believe in the postmodern society in which we have the moral relativism, folks don't want to believe in the existence of hell. It seems kind of antiquated to preach on that. It, it's an uncomfortable subject matter. I mean, because if you think about it, nobody wants to... We, we, we want to deny that a, a loving God would send people to hell. We say that's inconsistent with, with who He is, His love and His mercy and His grace... Timothy Keller, the author, says it's not only consistent with love, mercy, and grace. He says hell is necessary when those virtues of God are rejected. Yes, God is love and mercy and grace, but what Keller says, if we reject his love, mercy, and grace, then hell becomes a necessary thing because he is a just God. Back in 2016, one of my least favorite TV preachers, Joel Osteen, was interviewed. It was Easter. And he was interviewed why he, it's the largest church in America, and he was interviewed why he doesn't preach on hell. Here's what he said. You know, it's not hellfire and brimstone. Most people are beaten down enough by life, they already feel guilty enough. 
they're not doing what they should, raising their kids. We can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood or our meetings and be lifted up to say, you know what? I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And he says, I think that motivates you to do better. Friend, it may motivate people to do better, but doing better doesn't get anybody into heaven. You can, you can do your absolute best and still not get into heaven. I found, though, that it's not just Joel. There's a lot of pastors, a lot of Baptist pastors that don't speak on hell anymore. Even though we don't talk about it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It's still in our vocabulary every day. Take a hammer and hit your thumb. How many of you would say, oh, heaven? No. (laughs) See, it's still in our vocabulary. We just don't want to think of it as a theological concept. We're in a series entitled The Elephant in the Room. And the elephant in the room today is the existence of hell. An elephant in the room is defined as a metaphorical idiom. It's a problem that is obvious that nobody really wants to address. And so we're going to address it today. I've entitled the message, Hell, No Place to Joke About The text is found in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. This is our custom. I'd invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. John the Apostle's writing, and he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. There there are three things I want us to understand about hell this morning. And then, actually, in in all of the studying I was doing about the topic of hell, I actually found some things that the Bible teaches are present in hell that personally, I believe, ought to be found at Eastwood Baptist Church. And so hopefully that has your attention to stay with me through the life application, because I do think there are things that we see pictured in hell that ought to be not just in our church, but in every church. The first thing I want you to call your attention to is the presence of hell. The very fact that it exists. Jesus often spoke about the presence of hell. Jesus spoke as though it were a real place. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, here's what he says. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And so obviously Jesus is talking about a place that he he believes is real. Now there are those today who are called annihilationists. Annihilationists believe that if you're good, you go to heaven, but if you die, you just cease to exist. Seventh-day Adventists are annihilationists. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses are annihilationists. They believe that if you just die lost, that you just no longer exist. That's not the way Jesus puts it in our text. Rob Bell, some of you may know that name. He was the pastor of Mars Hill, Bap- or Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And in 2011, he released a book called Love Wins. And basically, he embraced a form of universalism. In his book, he said, basically, the, the love of God is going to win out in the end. And because God is love, everybody ultimately is getting into heaven. Now, that's not what the scripture teaches. 
Thankfully, the elders of the church dismissed him. The book has been branded heresy across Christian circles because it is. He denies the existence of hell. When Jesus refers to hell, he talks about a literal punishment in the afterlife. Bell says that it's not that, that it's really just evil and suffering on earth. That's what Rob Bell says hell is. He says you experience it on earth. Does that sound like what Jesus was saying in Luke 12? When he says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear him who after you're dead has the ability to cast you into hell. He doesn't act like hell is something you're going to experience here on earth. Some people try to get around the concept of hell. They say, well, that's the Old Testament God. That's his junior high years when he was kind of cranky and nobody really wanted to pay attention to him. But, but the New Testament God is Jesus who's meek and mild and he's about love and compassion. Yes, Jesus is meek and mild and about love and compassion. But friend, most of what we know about hell comes from Jesus who was meek and mild and love and compassion. And so we, we can't say it's just an Old Testament concept of God. What did Jesus teach us about hell? Do you know there are 46 verses in the Gospels dealing with hell that are referenced by Jesus, spoken by Jesus. He tells us multiple places that hell is a real place. He tells us it's a place of judgment in Matthew 31, verses 41 and 42. He says, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The word gnashing is a Greek word, bruko, which means to cry out in pain or in rage. And so it's obviously a place of punishment. Hell is forever. In Matthew 25, 46, Jesus speaking about the final judgment said, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Hell is more terrible than we can imagine. Just as we can't get our mind around how wonderful heaven's going to be, you know, Paul tells us that it's, it, it, God is doing exceedingly abundantly more than we think or ask, and there's no way we can get a real concept of what heaven's going to be like. I don't think we have a, a real concept of how bad hell's going to be either. I mean, you think of the terms, it's eternal, it's fire, it's utter darkness, it's weeping, it's gnashing of teeth. Because hell is real, we need to be urgent with the gospel. Because hell is a real place, we need to be telling our friends and our family about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees. Let no one go there unprayed and unwarned. I think he's right. So obviously... Scripture teaches the very presence of hell. Let's talk about the population of hell. Let's talk about who makes up those in hell. In our text, in verse 12, John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. I don't believe that's a reference to stature. I don't believe he's talking about everything from, from children to, to adults. I think, it's, I think he's talking more about uh, societal presence, if you will. He's talking about community standing, those who were small and those who were great, those who were the least and those who had the most. Adrian Rogers was one of my favorite preachers, and he talked about five groups that he thinks will populate hell, and, and I kind of agree with him. I, I, I think those groups will be there. He says the first group is the out-and-out sinner. These are the folks that just hate God. I had a guy across the hall from me at Florida State University in the dorm that, I mean, one night, he just, he just cussed God like a sailor, 
And, and, and I told him, I said, brother, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea what you're saying. He says, I know exactly what I'm saying. And, and so people like that, if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't get his heart right and give his heart to Jesus, put his faith in Christ, he's, he's, an, he's what I call the out-and-out sinner. They shake their puny fist at God. They don't believe in God. Say, even if you're real, I'm not going to serve you. So there's that group that will be there. But there's also the self-righteous will be there. Those who think they deserve, those who, those who would say, I am certainly too good to end up in hell. I know people that think hell is for the murderer, the uh, rapist, the, the robber, the abuser, the drunk, the, the, the big sinners, if you will. And, and these folks typically are nice people. They're hardworking people. They're active in their community. They might be a member of the PTO or PTA. They may even come to church and even sing in a choir or sing in a praise group. But listen, friend, no one is so bad they cannot be saved, and no one is so good that they don't need to be saved. The self-righteous, though, will be there. The procrastinators will be there. Those who put off to tomorrow what they know that they should do today. I know a lot of people that have told me, over, over the 28 years I've been a pastor, they'll say, preacher, I'm going I'm to give my heart to Jesus. I'm going to get saved, just not yet. I, you know, I'm just not going to do it yet. They think they still have wild oats to sow or whatever. They, they're just not ready is what they say. Solomon, the wisest man who walked the earth, said in Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring forth. Now, the Scripture says he's the wisest man that ever walked the face of the earth. And he said, listen, don't be bragging about tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come for you. You know, if I were to tell you Ben and I were going to switch pulpits next Sunday and that I would be here again, I can't tell you that with 100% certainty. Because there's no, I have no basis to say I'm even going to be on earth next Sunday. None of us do. We're not promised tomorrow. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, behold, now is the accepted time Behold, now is the day of salvation. He was saying, don't put it off. There'll be people who meant to be saved, but they procrastinated, and death knocked at their door, and it was too late. Let me tell you a fourth, a fourth group, the unsaved church member. The unsaved church member. Now, these, these people aren't anti-God. They're not anti-church. They're members. They're attendees. The problem is they have a religion, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul told Timothy, describing these people, he said that they have a, a power, they, they, or they have a form of godliness, but they lack the power thereof. In other words, they look good on the outside. Jesus told the Pharisees, he says, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers. Some of you have been to Israel with me, and you've, you remember standing on the Mount of Olives, and you look down over the cemetery that's there at the base, and, and there are all of these white boxes. They bury people in these white sepulchers, okay? And they're bleached white, and, and it's beautiful. I mean, it really is. As far as cemeteries are concerned, it is beautiful, and, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, listen, you guys are whitewashed sepulchers. You, you have this form of godliness, but there's nothing inside of you but dead men's bones. He equated those tombs with them. There are people that are counting on membership, attendance, giving, baptism. I was baptized, so I, I've got to be going to heaven, right? Listen, you can be baptized in every water hole from here to Texas, be held under so long you know every fish on a first-name basis and still die and go to hell. You get that, right? Baptism doesn't save anybody. Attendance doesn't save anybody. Giving doesn't save anybody. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves. See, nobody, nobody knows if you're saved except you and God. Paul says, examine yourselves 
as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you know yourself? Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you're disqualified? You're lost. Jerry Falwell, who said there'll be enough Baptists in hell to hold a revival meeting. He's right. Because there are people that are counting on their, their, their membership and not their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Nicodemus in John 3 is a prime example of somebody who has, somebody we'd say is an unsaved church member. It says, in, it says about Nicodemus in John 3 that he was a ruler of the Jews and that he was a Pharisee. He had worked his way up in the church. He was respected. If, if you'd have talked about Nicodemus in, in that town in the first century, everybody would have said, man, I hope my son grows up to be like Nicodemus. And he comes out at night and he asks Jesus about what he needs to do to be saved. And Jesus starts talking to him, says, unless you are born again, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He starts talking to him about this new birth and Nicodemus doesn't get it. He says, like, how do I enter my mother's womb a second time? Jesus has to help him understand it's not a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing that we're talking about. Nicodemus is an example of an unsaved church member. I mean, he was faithful. Faithful, but he was lost. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus tells them, He says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. They didn't lose their salvation. Jesus doesn't say, I knew you and you fell away. You got into sin and and you lost your salvation. He says, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. They were orthodox. They were doing everything in Jesus' name. They were, when it says prophesy, they were teaching in the name of Jesus. They were casting out demons in the name of Jesus. They, They were doing everything right, except they didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, In sharing his testimony, he says in in scriptures that he was a Hebrew among Hebrews, a lost church member. Judas, a lost church member. The parable of the wheat and tares says that only God knows the difference, that they both grow up in the the field together. And that's that's a reference to the church. That's a parable that really deals with the church about how saved and lost come together and only God knows the difference. And so the unsaved church member will be there. The fifth group, though, is the one that probably gives us the most difficulty. I think we can get our minds around the first four, but the fifth group are those who have never heard the gospel are going to be in hell. So that begs the question. Some of you in your mind would ask this question. How could a loving God condemn condemn someone to hell who's never heard of him? We say that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. And so as Christians, I have found the way that we deal with this concept of of those who have never heard the gospel is one of two ways. First of all, there's the appeal of inclusivism. We, We want to think that God is going to allow them into heaven. We know that salvation is only through Jesus, but we would say then, well, some are saved and they just don't know it. This is the idea that that Christ saves them even though they don't consciously embrace him. What matters to God, we say, is is that a person responds to the light they've been given. And so if they're seeking a God and and they don't have the light of Jesus, that we want to say, well, that's going to get them in. It appeals to God's character since he's love. He'd never condemn someone 
who had no chance to be saved. And all of us would like to believe this could be true. But the second response to this idea is the argument for exclusivism. What does the scripture teach about how a person gets into hell, gets into heaven? Romans 10, 13 to 15, and then verse 17. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they hear? Or how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? How they shall, shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In Paul's mind, the chain of logic makes complete sense. The only way to be saved is to call on the name of the Lord, call on Christ's name. The only way to call on the name is to believe the gospel. The only way to believe the gospel is to hear the gospel, and the only way to hear the gospel is to be told the gospel. And so obviously, Paul says it is very exclusive. In John 14, 6, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. He didn't make an exception for those who have never heard the gospel. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? That, that doesn't sound like Jesus says, you just respond to the light that you have and you'll get in. John 3, 17 and 18. We, we know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But 17 and 18 helps put into context verse 16. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only begotten son of God. Friend, that's, that's exclusive language. That's not responding to the light you have. That's saying Jesus is it. In Acts 4, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he argues for exclusivism. And in Acts 4, 10 to 12, he says, Let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Now look at this. Nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Now, if we really believed that Jesus was the only way of salvation, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked this question. I've been asked this question here at Eastwood at both campuses. Why do we spend so much money and so much effort and so much time sending people overseas when there are people right here in Warren County who don't know Jesus? I'll tell you why. Because hell is real. J. Oswald Smith, who used to pastor a church in Toronto, said this. He said, no one has a right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has heard it once. And I think he's right. I mean, here in Warren County, there are over 100 churches, 100 Christian Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches for a population of, I looked it up, 130,000. So basically, there's one church for every 1,100 people in Warren County. In a Muslim country, in that 1040 window where most of the, the Muslim countries are located, there's one missionary for every 405,000 people. That's why we go. 
We, we, have, we have a family. The boy grew up at Eastwood. His, his brother's on staff, and he is serving in the Middle East. He and his wife and his daughter is IMB missionaries because he believes that Jesus is the only way and that Jesus died for those in that country as much as he died for you and me. Seven and a half billion people on earth, three billion profess Christ. The number is so staggering, we can't get our mind around it. I mean, four and a half billion, how, how many is that? The population in the United States is about 330 million. All right? And so if you multiply that by like 14, 15 times, 14 or 15 times the population of the United States right now is living on earth without a relationship with Jesus, on their way to hell, many of whom have never heard the gospel. The population of hell. The third thing, those good news, hell is preventable. It's preventable. Some say, I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. Let me just stop here for a second. You know what? I don't either. Some say, I don't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I don't either. I agree. I don't want to believe in a God that sends people to hell. God simply allows people the freedom of their choice. There are two kinds of people on earth. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And they accept Christ as their Savior. And there are those to God, or there, there are those that God says to them, your will be done. You don't want to believe in Jesus? That's okay. I'm not going to force him on you. Your will is going to be done. Ultimately, God gives us the choice. You do not have to die lost. In fact, I can tell you on the authority of God's word, hell was never intended for human beings. You can't find a single verse in scripture that says that God's intention was to send anybody to hell other than the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus is talking about the great white throne judgment. And he says, then he'll say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire. Look at that. Prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not created for humanity. If you go to hell, you are an intruder. You're not supposed to be there. God wants you in heaven. Jesus died for you. In fact, what did Jesus say in John 14? Right before verse 6, in, in verse 3, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Where did he go? He didn't, he didn't go to hell. He went to heaven. And so he, he wants us there. No scripture teaches that hell was prepared for man. At the final judgment, I was trying to imagine today what Jesus might say. No, nobody knows what he'll say, and I don't presume to speak for the Lord, but I think it's possible that he would say something like this. To those who are being cast into the lake of fire, I believe he would say something like this. It doesn't have to be this way. I didn't mean for you to go there. I died on the cross so you wouldn't have to go there. I wanted you to go to heaven. I never intended you, intended for you to go there. It's preventable. So if you're here today and you've, you've never trusted Christ and you are on the highway to hell, as they say, broad is the road that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. If that's you, today you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved recognizing that there is no way you can save yourself, that Jesus is the Savior, and give your life to him, turn from your sin, and start following him. You can be saved. 
Hell is preventable. Nobody here has to go. Now, I told you, in, in reading all of the passages I found on hell this week, Ben and I were, were studying, and we're both pe- preaching out of this passage today, but one of the passages that Jesus teaches about hell is in Luke chapter 16. He talks about two people. He talks about a rich man, and he talks about a man named Lazarus. Now, some people call this a parable. I don't believe it was a parable because when Jesus, when Jesus tells a parable, he usually says something like, there was a man who had two sons, you know, the prodigal son. All right, the youngest said, Father, give to me the share of the estate. When Jesus uses a name, I believe that he was speaking of someone that folks would know. There would be people that heard him when he told that that day. They'd say, oh yeah, I know Lazarus. I know the rich man whose gate he used to stay outside of. And so I think he's telling a real story here. And so he talks about this rich man who had a beggar at the gate who begged for the crumbs off the rich man's table. It says the dogs came and licked his sores. They both die, and Lazarus, the poor man, the beggar, he goes to Abraham's bosom. He, in essence, goes to heaven, and the rich man ends up in hell. And the rich man is tormented in the flame, and he wants to be cooled down. And and so it's out of that passage that I think we find some things in hell that ought to be found more evident at Eastwood Baptist Church. Let me give them to you. The first one, I believe, is an unquenchable thirst. We should have an unquenchable thirst. This isn't just a physical thirst like for this man. It's a spiritual thirst after God. In Luke 16, 23 and 24, it says, Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he can dip the tip of his finger in water. Cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So I believe there's going to be a physical thirst in hell, but there's also going to be a spiritual thirst because there is the total absence of God. And folks are going to know that there's a God who exists, and they're going to know that they don't have to be there. And yet, they are. They have a great desire to be in God's presence. It's just too late. Now, why do I say that we need that? Because I think think we live in an age of spiritual complacency where folks are not thirsting for God like they used to, not chasing after God like they used to. I'll just ask you in your own heart, was there a time in your life when you were closer to Jesus than you are now? If you are, it's kind of like the old couple that were riding down the the road in the pickup truck and um, the lady looked over at her husband and she said, you remember when we were first married, how I used to sit over there next to you and snuggle? He said, yeah. She says, what happened? He looked over at it and he said, I ain't the one who moved. In other words, he said, you could still be sitting here if you wanted to. Friend, if you're not as close to Jesus as you once were, you are the one who moved. And you need to have a thirst, a desire to get back. Let me tell you a second thing that I find in hell that ought to be in a Baptist church. It's fire. Fire. Not not physical fire. But I think that... uh, if there, were more, if there were more fire, spiritual fire in the church, in the average church, the cold world would want to come in. I mean, if, if it's cold and you're outside and somebody has a little fire going, you got a little fire pit going, what do you do? You get near the fire. Friends, if you remember Mark chapter 2 when, when the friends bring the paralytic to Jesus and the place is so packed they have to cut a hole in the roof and drop him down. It says in that passage, when, when it was heard that Jesus was in the house. 
If you look it up in Matthew or Mark 2, that's what it says. It was heard that Jesus was in the house. When folks know that Jesus in the, is in the house, he packs the place out. Wouldn't it be wonderful if folks knew in Warren County and Allen County, all the surrounding counties, that they knew that on a regular basis Jesus was in the house at Eastwood Baptist Church? I don't believe, I don't believe we'd have to be inviting them. I believe they would be flocking if they knew he was here. We have to have fire in the church. I read about a church that was so dead, man had a heart attack, and the EMTs carried out 10 people before they found the one who had had the heart attack. That's dead. You know, we've let the Holy Spirit, we've let the Pentecostals steal the Holy Spirit from us. We have. The Bible says to, repeatedly, it says to sing, to clap, and to shout. 28 years ago, when I started pastoring, we were still in shouting days. It was a little rare, but it still happened. What would happen if somebody shouted here on a Sunday morning? We don't, we don't do it even though the Scripture teaches it. And, and when we clap, you know, sometimes it makes us feel uncomfortable. And, and I, I'm not saying that you have to clap. I'm just telling you the Word of God says clap, okay? And, and if you clap and, and those around you don't, don't look down at them as you being better than them because you're not. And, and if, if you don't clap... Don't worry about the ones who do clap. I'm just telling you, the scripture says to sing and to clap and to shout. We had a church over in East Tennessee where I was pastoring before I came here, and they had a little old blind lady in the church. And the pastor told me that she got happy one Sunday. And it was a circular auditorium. And she got up. She always sat right next to the wall. She got up and put her hand on the wall, and she went running around the sanctuary using her hand as a guide, shouting. Don't you know that church had fun that day. I, I mean, but seriously, what would happen if that kind of passion and excitement was found on a regular basis in our churches? Instead, you know, listen, we, we, I'll let you in on a little secret, okay? Over at the East Campus, we got a pipe organ. You know, you, you come in there and you hear Frankenstein music. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, what, what would happen if we had more praise and more worship? We have, we have churches that have lifeless sermons and people bumps on logs. We need fire. Third thing we need is we need tears. Tears are found in hell and we need them in heaven or we need them in church. Um, it says the rich man cried out when he was being tormented in the flame. And the word cry there means that he, he, he physically cried he also, he also spoke out, but he physically cried. And then when he's talking about his lost brothers, he again, the scripture says that he cried. You know, it used to be that crying at the altar was a normal thing. I don't know about this campus because I'm not here a whole lot, but I know that even going to the altar is not a normal thing for most people. And I mean, I have to ask myself this as I ask you this. When was the last time we cried over the fact somebody was lost? That we cared about enough, cared about them enough that we cried. Another thing in hell that needs to be in our church is missions or a missionary spirit. There are no atheists in hell. Everybody in hell is a believer. This, this, this rich man who died and went to hell, he had a missionary spirit. In Luke 16, 27 and 28, 
He says, then, I say, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, you send him to my father's house. I have five brothers. Let him testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. He had a burden for his lost family. All of a sudden, he wants to be a soul winner, but it's too late. We need to catch the passion that some of the folks in hell have for those who are lost. He begs Abraham. He says, send somebody from the dead, because if somebody from the dead shows up, they'll believe him. Abraham says, no, they've got the, they've got the prophets. They've got the, they've got the scriptures. I'm kind of thinking that the rich man was right. Think about it. You're sitting at home on a Sunday morning, and somebody that you know died six months ago knocks on your door. And you open the door, and they say, you know, I'm here to tell you that heaven and hell are real, and if you don't, if you don't repent, you're going to end up in hell. I'm thinking I, they would scare me into heaven right there. I mean, I, I'd become a believer if that happened. But the Scripture says no. And there's even proof that that's not true. Just a few weeks after Jesus spoke this story of the rich man and Lazarus, he was resurrected from the dead. And people didn't believe him. They scoffed at him, and they still scoff at him and don't believe in him today. And so if somebody comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Just a couple more. Love. This man obviously loved his family, and love ought to motivate our witness we should see missions and evangelism as not something we have to do, but something we get to do. We get to share our faith. If, uh, if you have coworkers and they're lost, or you have classmates and they're lost, and you've never talked to them about your faith and about Jesus Christ, here's what you ought to do tomorrow, all right? If you're not going to talk to them about your faith in Christ, here's what you ought to do. Go to work. Get in your cubicle, stand up in your chair, look over the railing at them, and tell them, go to hell. I mean, that's what you're telling them when you, t- when you don't tell them about Jesus. What you're basically saying is, go to hell, I don't care. So what's the difference in actually telling them that and then telling them that by your lifestyle? There's no difference. Obviously, I don't want you to tell them that. What I'd rather you do is tell them about Jesus. Prayer ought to be found This rich man cried out for water. He cried out for someone to send his brothers. People, we need to be praying with fervency and passion. In hell, he had fervency and passion, but nobody heard his prayer because it was too late. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. The last thing is remembrance. Verse 25, Abraham said, son, remember. In your lifetime, you receive your good things, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. Why do we need remembrance in the church? Because we need to remember how good God has been to us. We need to remember what it was like to be without Christ. Because that will help us want to share Christ with others. If, if you end up in hell, one of the things that you will remember is this message. You'll remember this sermon, I believe. You'll remember the time of invitation we'll have in just a moment where you could put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ because hell is a place of remembrance. You'll remember every, work, every witness, every sermon, every song. Some of you today have felt like I'm preaching directly at you. Can I just tell you, if you feel that way, that is not me. Because I don't know your spiritual condition. That's the Holy Spirit. If you feel that I've been preaching directly at you, looking straight at you, that's the Holy Spirit, not me. 
You know, I told you we were in the land of the uh, dying, headed to the land of the living. Our heart is an amazing thing. I did the math recently about how many times our heart beats over the course of an average lifetime, and it is amazing. I mean, if you beat 70 times a minute on average, I, I forget how many millions it was, but it, it, it beats way up in the millions. Think about that heart. Let me see if I can do this. Right? Our heart gets going. If, you have, if, if you've had a baby, you go and you get the ultrasound, and it, and it sounds like real fast, like a washing machine. So you're born go through your preschool years and that heart just keeps going, never takes a day off. You go to kindergarten, it keeps going, never takes a day off. Now your mom's heart's doing this when you're going to kindergarten, but not you. You go to middle school and you find that first boy or girl and your speed's up and you, you go to high school and then you find in college maybe the woman that you'll marry or the man you'll marry. You have kids, then you go through this thing of raising them and taking them to kindergarten and watching them grow up. You begin to age, and then one day, your heart stops. It's going to happen to all of us. Where will you be then? 